0: mongrel, miscegenator, half-breed, outcast, deviant, heretic. Our words for hybridity are so often epithets. They shouldn't be. Hybrids need not be the problem. It could be the solution. Hybrids do more than embody mixtures between groups. Hybrids reveal the boundaries between groups to be false. And this is vital, for creativity comes from intermingling, from rejecting the lifelessness of purity. Mosin Hamid, discontent in its civilizations.
1: Next time they ask you where you're from, you tell them I'm from every goddamn place you're crushing with your thumb, and if they want to who you are, well this time
0: don't say nothing, you just pick up your guitar. Welcome to White Adjacent. I'm your host, David Shams, an Iranian-American writer and wannabe podcaster. Born and raised in the heart of Kentucky's bourbon country. Growing up in my rural Kentucky hometown, there were whites, blacks, and then us with our Iranian immigrant father and white American mother. It took moving away from my hometown to realize there were others like us, struggling to figure out what it meant to have competing identities, what it meant to be hyphenated, what it meant to straddle whiteness and otherness, what it meant to be white adjacent. On this episode, I'm joined by Jamal Abdi, an Iranian-American activist living in Washington, D.C. Jamal and his siblings grew up in Seattle with his Iranian immigrant father and American mother. He spent much of his life navigating the challenges being white adjacent and is now the president of the National Iranian-American Council. Welcome to the show, Jamal. Thanks for having me on, David. Awesome. Fantastic. I um, guess I'll start by asking you what, it's, what, would it, what it was like growing up being Iranian-American in Seattle.
2: So I don't know if there's anything specific about Seattle, from my experience. Um, You know, my dad came to uh, the States uh, and and originally was in Pittsburgh, where he met my mom. And he came here with like a bunch of his friends. It was a whole, you know, like posse of these Iranians uh, with like big afros who would all walk around campus arm in arm. Mm -hmm. And they all or at least a lot of them ended up then moving to Seattle. Um, And there's actually a pretty decent size uh, Iranian American population in Seattle. I don't know why that is. Um, Was this before or after the revolution? So this was just before the revolution. Cool. Yeah. Got it. Um, And so, yeah, so my, you know, my immediate Iranian American community was really my dad's friends, families that they Mm -hmm. started in Seattle. Um, and uh, all of my, so all of my Iranian American friends, not all of them, but, but a lot of them were uh, like me. Their dads were uh, Iranian, uh, their moms were, you know, some amalgamation of European whatever, mm-hmm. white, white right. ladies. Um, and I actually, I kind of thought that um, it was m- way more common or there to be like half Iranian, <laughs> right. half uh, white American, or whatever. Right. Um, and so, sort of similar to to what you were saying, um, it wasn't really until I moved out to DC when I and, and I and I got even more involved in the community that I kind of realized that oh, you know, um, it, it is not so common to mm-hmm. to be sort of half Iranian, mm-hmm. um, and that's not to say though that you know in Seattle I did feel a separation from the broader Iranian American community. You know, when we go to events like, you know, Noruz or, uh, Chash or whatever. Um, so that was definitely there, but I had my immediate community of sort of, you know, kids like me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, for listeners who may not know, uh, Noruz is, um, commonly also known as, uh, Persian new year, um, other countries, other cultures in the, uh, greater middle East area, uh, celebrate it. um, it's on the first day of spring, Char is the uh, last Wednesday Eve of the new year, um, most commonly known uh, for non-Iranians as the fire jumping ceremony where people jump over small fires or large um, to um, kind of uh, wash out or burn out all of the bad from the previous year and kind of revitalize themselves for, for the next year. Um, yeah. So you talked about how it, it, it took moving to DC for you to realize that um possibly that, that there were, you know, being mixed, mixed race, being half Iranian, half American, wasn't as common. What, what sort of things kind of hammered that home for you here in DC w- when you moved? I think it was really um,
2: sort of being a part of the Iranian American community without having my family with mm-hmm. me, especially my dad with mm-hmm. me as sort of my entry pass. Right. Um, it was kind of navigating that community as a single person mm-hmm. and, um, you know, kind of increasingly realizing like that there were, there were gaps, there mm-hmm. were, there were things that, uh, uh, whereas, you know, before if I'd go to, you know, an Iranian picnic, mm-hmm. uh, I'd be with, with, you know, my, my crew and, um, you know, there'd be occasional, you know, people would ask me, you know, people, that strangers would ask me like, oh, why are you here? You're Iranian? Are you sure? You know, stuff like that. (laughs) But I still kind of had my family and my immediate friends to kind of lean on. And then when I came to DC, it was, you know, it was uh, me navigating that by myself. And um, yeah, so that's when it really became apparent.
0: Cool. Uh, What sorts of things uh, did you do as a kid or what sorts of events that took place that that kind of uh, made you realize you were Iranian-American? Or did you even think about it that much or, um, you know,
2: for me, um, it was always, I don't know. There were, there were sort of, there there was an uh, evolution of sort Mm -hmm. of how this, how this worked. And, um, you know, when I was very young, I remember, um, it was always my name that Mm -hmm. would, you know, I, I am like a lot of Iranian Americans, but especially, you know, somebody like me, I'm, you know, I don't, I, I look sort of Iranian, but hmm. it's really, I, I'm kind of white passing. Right. Uh, yeah. and white adjacent. White, white. Oh, is that what, <laughs> is that what we're calling this? <laughs> uh, and, but, you know, but, but, but my name, you can't right. get around that. Yeah. Like, you know, unless I had like really cool hippie parents or something. Like, right. Why is your name Jamal Abdi? Right. Yeah. Uh, and so like that for me was really like, as far, like, as I remember it, um, in like preschool, kindergarten, first grade, I remember always dealing with that and kind of not understanding it, Mm -hmm. like knowing that I was, you know, Mm -hmm. different. But when
0: when you say that you're talking about like people remarking about your name or like other kids being like, what is is Jamal? Like, what is Jamal? What what does that mean? Or is, is that what you're talking about? Or is there something else? So there, like, I, I vividly
2: remember in, in, um, I think it was preschool when I lived in Pullman, Washington, okay. which is the, which
0: is where Washington state is. Right? Yes, it is. All right. All right. Uh,
2: and uh, I remember like in preschool, like some, some girl, you know, saying, no, that's not your name. Your name's not Jamal. And like <laughs> me being very offended by that and like, yeah. no, it is. And yeah. Why would you be? <laughs> um, and then, you know, other things like there were episodes like that. Like I remember, um you know, first grade, my, my bus driver at some point, like sort of getting lost or something. And then asking me what my name was because I was the last person on the bus. And she was like, "Oh, why can't they, why can't parents name their kids normal names anymore? It used <laughs> to be, you know, John and Dick and now it's whatever your name is. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah. that sort of built up for me, like this kind of gradual understanding of like, Oh no, this is, this is mm-hmm. different. Right. Um, and then, but a lot of it though, I mean, I was in Seattle, like, right. you know, it's um, a pretty
0: diverse community. My understanding is right. Yeah, so it's pretty not
2: liberal. Yeah. Um, a lot of it actually, when I really like started school, like public school, like first grade, it was people asking me like, where are you from? Mm-hmm. Or you know, and I and I, I would be like, well, do you mean where was I born, or mm-hmm. where do I live, or where is my dad from, mm-hmm. or and having to actually like consciously think about that, mm-hmm. um, that was the first time that I had to kind of right. do that, and uh, where, where it started to occur to me. Then, you know, as I got older, uh, there there are a lot of different sort of phases right. of this, and and times when I was, you know, maybe like embarrassed or wanting to just pass as mm-hmm. just like everybody else. And then other times where I really took a lot of pride just in being, you know, in being different Mm -hmm. and wanting to kind of almost wear on my sleeve that I was, you know,
0: half Iranian. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you've talked before, uh, offline, uh, with me about how, uh, I think you talked about how, like it was your mom who would come to like school and like, give presentations about rus or what certain things in the Iranian culture meant. And then like that kind of transitioned into you having to explain things that happen in Iran or like what Iran is about or whatever, something along those lines. Um, can you like go into that a little bit more and like kind of explain those situations and like why it was your mom and maybe not your dad who was doing the the presentations about <laughs> Nooruz or Iranian culture? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, my...
2: My parents' uh, situation, like my my dad worked and then my Mm -hmm. mom um, was a stay-at-home mom and then also, you know, became a teacher and Mm -hmm. did some other sort of like volunteer stuff. And so she just, you know, she uh, loves kids. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when there would be opportunities to do like, I don't know, show and tell or Mm -hmm. bring your parent to school day or whatever it was, she'd be the one that would come in. And a lot of times it would be to to share this, you know, unique, uh, mm-hmm. element of our, our culture and I- our identity. And so she would, uh, be the one who would, uh, you know, talk about the, the half scene, mm-hmm. uh, for, for the Iranian new year and things like that. Um, and I don't know, as far as like me having to explain stuff, um, the main thing that I had to explain as a kid was how to pronounce Iran. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. There that was happens I, way too much. <laughs> I like
2: to think my like the my first uh experience with like activism or you know, speaking truth to power mm-hmm. was in third grade when we were singing, like our, our music class was singing a Rafi song. You mm-hmm. know, Rafi, the kids' singer. Right. right. It was this song about. It would just list off countries like, you know, like, uh, Japanese people come from Japan, Mm -hmm. English people come from England. And then there was a line, uh, uh, Iranians come from Iran Mm -hmm. and they all live in America. So this like nice, you know, melting pot song, but (laughs) as a class, we were all singing this together and I'm just like, we can't say Iranians (laughs) come from Iran. That's not how you pronounce it. And so I, after class, yeah. I mean, I was a shy kid, but I go, go to my music teacher and I'm like, Hey, like it's actually pronounced Iran, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. And she actually said, well, that's how it's pronounced in the song. So that's how we're singing it. Oh, wow. And that was, that was it. That was it. That, was it. <laughs> that was it. And so, you know, from that moment forward, I decided I'm going to be a, an activist for Iranian Americans. Yeah.
0: Not really. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Um, So, uh, you've also like, I think in our previous conversations, you mentioned, um talking about like you just felt like you were like an average uh, american kid and then like you um your family came to visit and then ended up staying with you your dad's family and then that there was some like realization there that through that interaction that you started to realize that like you're not like the rest of your like white friends um like how did that impact you more did that kind of change your perspective did that give you Um, any, I don't know, did they give you any anxiety now that like this culture that had always been around, but was never like, you know, concrete, it was concrete in your life, but it it wasn't either. It was kind of this thing where you were straddling both worlds, but then now it's like definitively in your life. Like they're living in your house, maybe coming to your sporting events. And so um, it wasn't just that it was your name. Now it's something more concrete than just that.
2: Yeah. My, so my, my grandparents, my Iranian grandparents, my dad's parents mm-hmm. came to the United States in, um, it was like 90, 93 or 94. Mm-hmm. And my dad actually hadn't seen them that entire time. Like, oh, so wow. he came to the U S right before the revolution. Like mm-hmm. I think like 78 mm-hmm. went back once a Mm -hmm. year later for like a month. And then actually didn't go back until um, relatively recently. Um, And so my grandparents came um, and they, and and they came like long-term to like live with us. And they did go back and forth a little bit, but it was, it was culture shock within our own house because suddenly, I mean, the thing I I remember most is like the sofra, like, so, Instead of sitting at the dinner table, we now, (laughs) we now had to unfurl this, like, what I considered like this kind of like nasty, uh, uh, like, you know, plasticky sheet Mm -hmm. and sit on the ground, Mm cross-legged, super uncomfortable. (laughs) And I know the feeling. (laughs) And, (laughs) and then, you know, my mom made uh, made Persian food.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, how was, how was that? Did they, did your grandparents like think that it was good enough? Did it, did it meet their standards or? I mean, the, the
2: politics between (laughs) my, my mom and my dad's side of the family are probably more complicated than the politics of us, Iran relations. Uh, so I'm probably not even an expert enough to know what exactly was happening. Right. Um, my mom really embraced uh, Iranian culture, especially early on mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, in, in her relationship with my dad and in their marriage. And then I think with my grandparents coming in sort of, I think the perception was they kind of took over the house and mm-hmm. maybe they thought they were being helpful. Um, but my, I think my mom sort of thought that, you know, oh, they're taking over and they are kind of deciding, like, I am not good enough at doing this. So they're mm-hmm. going to do the work for me. And who knows, who knows right. who was right or who was wrong, but there was definitely tension there. Right. Um And for me, you know, I loved Persian food, but then when it was like, Oh no, every night now we're going to have Persian food. We're going to sit at yeah. the sofa, and myself. And then my, my younger brother were just like, no, this is, this is <laughs> not
0: happening. It's like, good every once in a while, but like, you know, <laughs> you know, I want my happy meal every like once a week or something. But Now I've got to have gourmet sebz or like, you know, game every, like every night. Right. It's, right. It's too much for me. Well, and so we actually <laughs> had, we had, um,
2: sheep. Okay. <laughs> we, we, um, we, so we lived like in the sort of suburbs of Seattle mm-hmm. and we had, um, like a half acre. And so my crazy parents like put up a fence and went to the, to Monroe or something like mm-hmm. kind of the, um, with, all do love to people in Monroe, kind of like Hicksville, right? Uh, and at least that's what I how I felt it was. And we we bought these sheep and we raised sheep, and mm-hmm. then uh, we would take them to get butchered, and then we would have you know lamb to eat right. for like you know right. months and months. So we did this kind of in, in successions. And w- once my grandparents came, they <laughs> butchered the sheep, and like they became the ones that butchered the sheep. Yeah. sheep. So I came home one day, and there was like no no sheep in the backyard. And there was a laundry basket like with blood in it. Like, and I'm just like, what is going on here? And it turned out that they had taken the the onus upon themselves to, 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 to butcher that. the sheep. And the thing that pissed me off was we had always had lamb chops. Right. And I don't even know if it's true, but my, we didn't have lamb chops because of the way they butchered the sheep. And okay. I was just like another, you know, another <laughs> privilege of mine taken away by my foreign grandparents. <laughs> Uh, So just little things like that. And, you know, I was, there was probably a lot of other stuff in there, but it was, it was, it was a little bit of a culture shock. And I I don't think that I really appreciated um, like how much of a privilege it was to have Mm. them with us and to be able to like get more in touch with my culture. And now I look back and I I wish I would have, you know, kind of relied on them more Mm. and, you know, spoken Farsi with them more mm-hmm. and tried to really like embrace that stuff. But for me, it was like, no, this is, um, this is ruining my routine. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. You've talked, you and I have talked a lot offline, um, just in general over the the course of the last eight years, since we've known each other about, you know, language as a barrier, uh, to entry into the Iranian community in DC and, and across the country. um, and, you know, you hear from other Iranian-Americans who are like us who didn't really grow up with the language skills and we kind of feel out of place when we go to Iranian-American events. Um, <clears throat> you know, how has that a- affected you um, like in your role, different roles at NIAC, the National Iranian-American Council? Um. So I think that... uh
2: you know, we we were talking about uh, sort of realizing that you know you're you're different than you know your your non-Iranian friends, and and then your mm-hmm. you know Iranian friends in your Iranian community. Mm-hmm. And you know, I will say, like even in Seattle growing up, like there was kind of a like an imposter syndrome mm-hmm. where you know I would go to these things, and when people would say like you know who are like you're not Iranian, mm-hmm. you know where are you from, and stuff like that, and then also not really speaking farc beyond like you know very basic things um it really contributed to that um and so for me you know i think my experience has been that the way that i have really embraced my heritage has actually been through politics mm-hmm. so you know i was you know the the thing that like like my dad and i would always talk about, you know, what was happening inside of Iran Mm -hmm. and and the politics there and, you know, what the, the majlis elections and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, and especially, you know, you combine that with being sort of, you know, I'm in the, like the nine 11 generation, like, you know, I had just graduated high school and nine 11 happened. Um, and then you had the the Iraq war and all these things happening. I think those, there's sort of a confluence where, um, that's really, that was kind of my entry into my heritage and the Iranian American community. Um, but the, the language is, it's a, it's a barrier and it's something that, you know, I think I, I still feel, you know, ashamed of that. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not fluent in Farsi and mm-hmm. it's something that, uh, I sort of have studied off and on. Um, but unless I am able to actually just go to Iran mm-hmm. and immerse or maybe, you know, drop me in Tehranjulus and I, you know, have to speak Farsi for a month, mm-hmm. uh, it's just, it's hard to develop that. Yeah. Um, So what really, you know, for me, there are sort of two imperatives there to, to get better and and to, to, to learn the language uh, and to become fluent. Uh, And one is my work and the fact that, you know, I've been, I've now been working uh, on issues that affect the Iranian American community for almost a decade Mm -hmm. and uh, to not grow as just a person uh, in being able to speak the language, uh, that most Iranian Americans speak, I think would be, um, you know, just a missed opportunity and, and mm-hmm. something that, you know, especially as I've uh, continued this work, I think is really important. And then the other thing is that, you know, I had a, I had a kid, uh, mm-hmm. r- recently, like, a, he's, he's, uh, last year, 16 months ago. Um, and I mean you can do a podcast with him maybe in a decade and he's a quarter Iranian. <laughs>
0: right. Um, and, but his name is Cyrus right. or, or Cyrus, yeah. uh, or Kourosh. Mm-hmm. He still has the last name Abdi and we'll pass that on presumably to his kids as yeah. well. So I think you've talked about your name being a, um, indicator, right. And so that's always going to be passed along. And so having him at least be knowledgeable of his Iranian I feel, I understand what you're saying in, in that regard. Yeah. And
2: almost like, I don't want it to just be a novelty. Right. Uh, and I think that this experience that I had growing up was that at times it was just a novelty and it was sort of something that it was cool to be different. It was cool mm-hmm. to kind of have this thing, but to not really know it and be immersed in it, um, I think it's just, it's, uh, it's a missed opportunity. And mm-hmm. so for him, I... I, I you know, I'd really like for him to pick up Farsi, you know, early. Mm -hmm. And I look at like, I have like my siblings, my sister was actually um, born around the time that my grandparents came to the United States. And so she was, you know, they were her babysitters and her her nannies. And so she, you know, learned how to speak Farsi Mm -hmm. um, just through that experience. And so uh, I, I hope that I can do the same with Cyrus. I'm not doing a very good job of it. So uh, I may have to leave him with my grandparents
0: for, right. for a couple months. Yeah. So he can pick you, it up. You can get a, an Iranian nanny to who speaks Persian to, to <laughs> take care of him. That is a good idea. Yeah. I had not even thought of that. That is an amazing idea.
2: He yeah. actually, his nanny is uh or his, his babysitter is Syrian. Okay. And so my mom thinks that he is picking up Arabic, but yeah. it's just like baby talk.
1: <laughs> yeah. She
2: doesn't know me.
0: That's probably true. <laughs> um, I guess we can talk about like you mentioned 911 you you mentioned the Iraq war you mentioned being in college and and like turning to activism I guess uh as uh a way to like approach your heritage um like did you uh experience anything directly from those events that that caused you to to like become more active or was it just a a sentiment or a feeling that you picked up in the, the ether of society, I guess?
2: I don't have really, you know, egregious examples of discrimination, mm-hmm. uh, post 911 stuff necessarily. I mean, there were times where I remember in Vancouver, of all places, which has a, you know, really vibrant Iranian Canadian community. Um, Somebody like insulting my grandmother because she you know wears a hijab some mm-hmm. some non iranian and feeling you know very mm-hmm. um you know very triggered by that, but I think that um and, and there were other there are you know, other other little things and you know um even before 11, you know little things mm-hmm. but for me I think what it really was was actually um it's sort of like being being mixed. Mm -hmm. is it's a, it's a pathway to empathy Mm -hmm. of being able to, it's almost like being able to, you know, hold, uh, hold two thoughts at the same time. is like a measure of, I guess a measure of intelligence, but I think it's sort of a Mm -hmm. measure of empathy, being able to actually understand these different worlds. And so, you know, nine 11 happens, the Iraq war is happening. And I think, you know, a lot of the country was sort of galvanized around a single idea. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I think for me to be able to kind of think about things from the perspective of my family in Iran Mm -hmm. and like being not necessarily a part of that and kind of trying to see all sides of that. um, I think that's really what, what informed my, um, my like politicization after those events and really viewing like U S foreign policy through a lens of how that impacts uh, people in the middle East Mm -hmm. and, and, people inside of Iran and and what that all means instead of just thinking about it in this sort of like nativist way of like, well, you know, I'm an American damn it, and Mm -hmm. you know, these colors don't run. So we're going to go bomb a bunch of people. It's like, well, you got to think that through a little bit and actually understand how other people uh, are impacted by that.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You, you mentioned in, in, in conversation before that you've felt the most you felt out of place was going to a church with your mother. Um, and if you walk through that, or like maybe I get my like wires crossed or whatnot. So, um, I f- I mean, so <laughs> I, uh,
2: my, my mom actually, um, she grew up Lutheran, mm-hmm. went to the Lutheran church in Pittsburgh, then married my dad, and I think uh, <laughs> she. I mean, my mom's amazing. She. <laughs> was, you know, super into what was happening inside of Iran. And she would go with my dad to events, um, you know, like students organizing events around the revolution and talks and things like that. And would be like super active in those things. And it's like, why is this, this white blonde lady, you know, <laughs> so involved in this. Um, but she also then like studied Islam and actually like worked at a, uh, uh, Islamic school for a little bit. Um, And then eventually then went back to the Lutheran church and through this all, her kids were with her. So like Mm -hmm. I, I, when I was young, I I went to mosque, Mm -hmm. Uh, then in elementary, I, my mom got on her Lutheran kick and I went to church. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and there were other things where I would go and I sort of was just like, this is not really home for me. So I would go to church and then we also, we did go to Farsi school a few Mm -hmm. times and both of those experiences, I felt like I don't really belong here. I don't necessarily have a lot in common with the people around me at church. It was all mostly very white, like very white people Mm -hmm. (laughs) if I can say that. And then, you know, at the, at Persian school or at the mosque, it was, there, there were, there were no white people. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so, yeah, so, the irony there, the, the sad thing there is that you know, just like my Farsi is is no good, my understanding of the Bible is also not very good. <laughs> yeah. So I guess fitting in is actually right. pretty important to yeah to en- enable these things to sink in.
0: Right. So you you mentioned feeling like it, you didn't you didn't fit in uh in the in the Persian school. You didn't fit in with the um, at a predominantly white area. Like, have you found yourself? more comfortable in surroundings where it's predominantly people of color or predominantly mixed race, or have you just been able to like become more comfortable being uncomfortable pretty much everywhere you go? It's a good
2: question. I don't like, like, and and when we talked earlier, Mm -hmm. you asked me, you know, like in high school, who Mm -hmm. did I hang out with? Like, was I, did I hang out with, uh, was my crowd, you know, people of color, was it white kids or whatever? and, I never really like internalized, you know, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like all my friends were, you know, all my friends, not all of them, but a lot of them, like their parents were uh, foreign born um, uh, and stuff like that. But I think what it really is like for me is going back to the, the kind of like the empathy thing. Mm -hmm. And like I'm most comfortable kind of in situations with nuance where Mm -hmm. it's not like necessarily tribal or nativist. It's not like, you know, like, like I, I, in high school, I hated like pep rallies. Like I just can't sit there and like cheer (laughs) blindly for a team. Like I want to know about all the teams and like what's good about them and what's bad. And like, how do you do those things? And so I think it's the same thing with like people. Like I think if it's something where we're organized around one particular identity um, and there's not any nuance there or shade there, it's kind of tough to fit in. But in there, if there's opportunities for a little bit of a nuance and conversation, that feels a lot more comfortable. Mm -hmm
0: we're talking about friend groups. Uh, we've talked about kind of growing up in Seattle and the culture clashes with your uh, family, um, trying to figure out where you fit in the dual empathy, so on and so forth. And a, a little bit about the imposter syndrome. Um, have you ever like directly, like when you go to, or I guess when you first started going to a, events in, in DC where, or even in, in Seattle where, uh, Iranians were just straight up like you're not enough. You're not good enough or you're not Iranian enough or you don't look Iranian or you don't sound Iranian for those types of things it any sort of resistance. And then you you can take that and, and talk about any interactions with your with even your, your mom's family or your dad's family kind of bring that in as well. Um, I don't I don't know that there have been.
2: Incidents like that, mm-hmm. like. I think that, um, you know, I, I think that the, 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 Iranian, like Iranians and Iranian American culture is, is actually sort of inclusive of new people and strangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What it was, was not wanting to feel like I was a stranger yeah. and like I was a tourist, but that right. I belonged there. Yeah. And so, so I think was a lot of it,
0: like internalized. Then. Yeah. I think a
2: lot of it was, is, yeah. it, you know, it was in my own head. Yeah. Um, when I, when I got to DC, um, I actually, you know, I moved here, I had done some political work in Seattle and then I came here, uh, in 2007 really to get a job on the Hill. I had worked on, um, the elections and I wanted to work for a member of Congress and my first experience, I probably shouldn't tell this story. It probably makes me like an apostate or something. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but my first experience, I, my, my, my landlord that I, 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 you know, moved into this like ratty temporary, um, uh, uh, house. Um, and my landlord, uh, was this, uh, Pakistani guy who was like, Oh yeah, you're looking for, to work on the Hill. Like I go there all the time. I don't, I don't know why he was kind of an interesting guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he took me to, they have a, like a Friday prayer, mm-hmm. uh, on the Hill. Like, so he took me to the Hill to like go to a hearing or something and sort of like yeah. show me around. And then he was like, yeah, there's this Friday prayer every day. So I'll take you there. And I was sort of just, you know, I was like, eh, I don't necessarily feel comfortable. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not really, you know, I don't really consider myself Muslim, but, yeah. but, you know, why not? Why not? Yeah. Uh, and so I went and the people there were like super inviting yeah. and, you know, like, yeah, we'll help you find a job and this or that. Um, but they didn't realize that I wasn't. Muslim, Mm -hmm. uh, but they just knew I had a Muslim name and that, you know, I come from a Muslim family. Um, But I didn't tell them like, oh yeah, actually, you know, really for most of my formative years, I went to church. Yeah. Um, But so, yeah, so there there are all these like little instances like that, but I've never, I don't think I've ever faced like outright, you know, like you don't belong here from the Mm -hmm. Iranian community. I've had, you know... among friends, you know, jokes about like, oh, you know, Jamal's the Sefid or
0: you mm-hmm. know, right, Bache <laughs> uh, But and Sefid means white, and Bache kai right, it means like you're an American-born Iranian. Yeah, and you don't have the same experience. There's like a negative connotation depending on the context, right? So,
2: yeah, I, I mean, I think the only place where it would be negative is, um, and is in the notion of you know my the work that I do.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: How can you claim to you know speak for Iranians if you are, you know, you're not really Iranian? Right. That's why I don't speak for Iranians. Right. <laughs> you know, that's why that's why for me it is I think in general if you are in the United States there are a lot of Iranian Americans who want to claim to speak for the Iranian people and things like that. And for me, that's a fine line regardless, but mm-hmm. I'm also very aware of that line because, you know, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not Iranian. I'm mm-hmm. Iranian American. And right. that means a lot of different things, yeah. but that means, you know, I can speak for myself and I can speak for like-minded people. Um, mm-hmm. but that's where, that's where it ends.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like, um, your activism or, um, talking about your Iranian Americanness has I guess I, the only term I can think of is consequences, like um, where you talk about being Iranian American, that it could close some doors or opportunities for you. I know like your your work it is with Iranian Americans, so it's really not like it's beneficial to talk about your Iranian Americanness, but maybe in like previous jobs or in um you know, just like personal setting, interacting with other people.
2: Um, Well, you know, anytime that I've been in the process of applying for jobs, I've wondered like, you know, I think there was a, there was actually a study around the time that I was transitioning out of my, like the political work I, I did right after college and looking for more of like my, my next career mm-hmm. and, uh, and eventually coming to Washington where the study came out that said uh that there they you know there's d- discrimination against certain types of names mm-hmm. um and i think you know jamal was like at the top of the list right. and um so i you know i would wonder like okay is is that sh- should i actually i actually for a while on my resume put you know jamal dryden abdi dryden is my middle name okay. it's like an english name yeah. like and look like yeah i uh, quite frankly, it was like signaling to people, you know, like, you know, I'm not scary, you know? Right. Um, which, you know, I kind of, I kind of regret feeling that way, but you know, that's, that's sort of, how I felt, um, then when I, when I did work on the Hill, um, you know, there were, there were actually some groups, um, like I remember, uh, what was, what's the group called? Uh, some like hard right pro Israel group. Um, who it, it became clear, like, kind of didn't want to, didn't trust me, or didn't want to mm-hmm. deal with me, or right. had, or, or wanted to kind of cast aspersions, and so they would, you know, any every time they'd come, in, they'd be like, "Well, where are you from?" Mm-hmm. And I tell them, "Oh, I'm from Washington State." <laughs> um, so there was stuff like that. Um, and, you know, I think on the hill, like that, that is a big issue, like dealing with, um, a, a lot of offices do actually have staff, like they, they have like Jewish staff members deal with pro-Israel groups. That's mm-hmm. like a real thing. Right. Um, and uh, so, so I think like that was an instance where it did seem like, oh, because of my heritage, like I'm not trusted to deal with certain kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then kind of going back to your last question, you know, the one form of discrimination I do Uh, I I get a lot of, which I just kind of laugh at um, when we send out emails, you know, Mm -hmm. I send out a blast email to a big list and I'll get presumably um, non-Iranians who are, you know, whatever, disagree with us or whatever, who will tell me to go back to Iran. Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. Which is like, well, (laughs) that's going to be hard for me. And and then, um, and then I, I do get from Iranians they say I'm, I'm Arab. Like you're, yeah. you're you, because of my name, you right. know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, Jamal Abdi is technically like an Arab name. Right. And so like, Oh, you Arab, you can't talk for Iranians. And so that's like, it's kind of funny. Like that discrimination among Iranians
0: is actually it's pretty heavy, pretty pervasive. Yeah. 100%. Um, you've talked, uh, before about wanting to go to Iran and that kind of being, a. um, I don't want to call it number one on your bucket list. I know it is on mine and that it being like something that, that is, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a driving force, but it's something that's up there that you want to do that you, um, feel like maybe, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth that like you don't feel, you wouldn't feel fulfilled in your life if you don't go like, is that still like pretty pervasive? Is that driving you to continue doing the activist work or totally? Yeah. Um, So I, I
2: haven't been to Iran and when I was like growing up, um, for a while, there was the issue of, you know, my, my dad would have needed to like, you know, pay to not Mm -hmm. have to fulfill his military service. And so we didn't go because of that. And then kind of when things started opening up and a lot of my friends started going to Iran with their families, we, my my dad kind of promised, oh, we'll go, we'll go next spring. We'll Mm -hmm. go next summer. Um, and it just it just never happened yeah. and it was sort of the same thing as like you know my dad and my family being my entry point into mm-hmm. Iran and Iranianness and so I kind of just waited waited for him to, to make that happen and it yeah. didn't happen and like I said he didn't go to Iran then until 2012 and by then you know by then I was you know my own person and mm-hmm. uh, but I, I had already worked in government on the hill and then I was working at NIAC mm-hmm. where you know especially being in a prominent position there are you know, serious, you know, political risks if I, if I do try to go to Iran. Mm-hmm. So it, it hasn't happened and it really, it does feel like, a uh, there's a, there's a, there's a hole somewhere in my, yeah. you know, <laughs> not to be too dramatic, but you know, like that's... there's an empty space yeah. and it really, it, 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 it does, it really bothers me. Yeah. Like it really, it hurts, um, to not feel like I can reach out and like touch that part of my identity and like be immersed in it. And it also, for me, kind of feeds this, you know, this feeling of, like, wanting to be able to connect by giving back and, like, by, you know, you know, thinking about the needs of, you know, my my family and their friends inside of Iran. Mm-hmm. And, like, in lieu of actually being there, I can at least be mindful of them and, like, work over here to make sure that, you know— our foreign policy and things like that aren't making their lives worse. Mm -hmm. But then my real, like ultimately what, what really motivates me is the prospect of being able to, you know, visit Iran with my dad and my son Mm -hmm. Um, and to be able to share that with, with my son, but then for my dad to be able to share it with me as well. And for me to be able to experience that. And that really, it it is a matter of like, you know, I'm, I'm in too deep now. Like I've, I've done the, Mm -hmm. the, the work that makes it difficult for me to do that. So how do I, actually make things right so that we don't have these political tensions and I actually will be able to make that trip. Um, and so at the end of the day, I think that's really as far as like personal self-interest, that's really kind of the tangible, uh, effect
0: that I want to be able to have through my work. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I completely understand that, um, some of those same issues, um, uh, I struggle with as well. So, um, it's good to hear that. Well, it's not good, but it's nice to know that there are other people who are feeling that same struggle. Um, and I guess uh, we talked about it a little bit before. Um, uh, there's the, the conversation about saliency. Wherever you, wherever you are, like um, if you're with a group of white Americans, you feel like you're a person of color. But when you're with people of color, like you may feel white. Um, That's part of like Robin D'Angelis, the uh, author of white fragility. She talks about these like saline issues that, that um, mixed race individuals feel. Um, Can you, do you ever feel that way about your, like whenever you're in in different like groups of people, like when you're with people of color, maybe you're, you know, you feel white or when you're with the white people, you feel like I'm like, I'm the Iranian guy, I'm the diversity, I'm the one who's like spicing things up here. I
2: think that I don't know. I I think uh, that uh, I gotta gotta think about this one because I don't know. I, I, I don't necessarily feel that way. I do feel like you know, like like growing up, or even now, if I'm with my non-Iranian friends, um, I'm the Iranian guy mm. until somebody who's fully Iranian enters the picture. Mm-hmm. And then it's like my credentials are kind of put to the test a little bit, yeah. you know? Um, and I don't necessarily feel that like what I'm hanging uh, hanging out with uh Iranian friends um i more feel like again my credentials are being put to the test yeah. of like how Iranian are you
0: yeah 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 okay what sorts of things do you think uh outside of language get get test get tested like the credentials being tested like you know uh how you drink your tea or what what food you get whenever you go to moby's or <laughs> Moby Dick's house of kebab, by the way, in Washington D.C. <laughs> that was a reference. <laughs> um,
2: I don't know. I, I I don't. This is something that you know, like imposter syndrome.
0: Mm-hmm, maybe it's
2: maybe it's just all in your head. Yeah. Um, but I think that there is a there's a a desire to to like prove that I belong. Mm-hmm. So okay. if I go to a if I go to a Persian restaurant, you know, if I if I can speak in Farsi or if I can at least, you know, when I order, I, I pronounce things the right way. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times the waiter will be like, Oh, what? Like that's, are you Iranian? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so it's really, it's, I don't know what it is, but it's like, it's wanting to, to show that, wanting mm-hmm. to demonstrate that.
0: Um, and I, that's right. So yeah. No worries. I think that explains it like you're just like trying to prove yourself unless you have another thought that you're formulating. No,
2: there was something else. I I, I kind of lost my train of thought. There was um,
0: no, I, you lost it. That's I mean, all right. I'm assuming this isn't live. No, it's not live <laughs> at all, but we're probably just going to play it live. So oh, fantastic. <laughs> I should have it's asked. Gotta, no, it's got to be like, we're going to you know, we want to make it real for people. So, um but that's fine. Like, there are a lot of things that like, you can't explain the feeling that you feel. You're just like, I walk into this space and it's like, I'll be honest, walked into NIAC the first time and I'm like, all right, this is, this is the space I've been looking for for a long time. You know, like yeah. I didn't have this opportunity to be, to explore my iranian And finally I get here, here's this space that's really welcoming and open and, you know, I can be that person accepting my Iranian-ness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know. I didn't know that there was an opportunity to have a different feeling about it. You know, like it just like was a mm. it was there and then it that void was starting to get filled. And it was like, oh, so this is how it feels to actually be um, like have that call it thirst, that hunger to be a part of something that you yeah. haven't been able to be a part of. Yeah.
2: Um, and I think that's something, I mean, it's not, I think there is sort of the like, you know, racial or ethnic, um, issue of like, mm -hmm. you know, being half Iranian, but I also, I think for a lot of, uh, you know, Iranian, you know, second generation who are born here, Mm -hmm. who have had the same experience where, you know, maybe they connect to their heritage through some of the things that they would do with their parents, but they weren't necessarily themselves, Mm -hmm personally involved. Their parents were still the gateway for that. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, and I think that's what like what NIAC part of what we're doing is sort of um figuring out what that experience is of being Iranian American. What does that actually mean? And you know, in fifty years, is there gonna be such a thing mm-hmm. or are we all gonna be just like so assimilated that it's just, you know, a last name um, right. or something like that. Or is there something that does bind us together and that does make us, you know, of Iranian descent that we hold on to culture, language, politics, whatever it is. Um, so navigating that I think is like a really important and, and, uh, something that hasn't necessarily happened yet Mm. that we're, we're sort of working through almost.
0: Definitely. We we've gone through several minutes here of, uh, intense questioning and, um, deep conversation. I'm going to try to make it a little bit more lighthearted here. Um, yeah, is my, is my therapy session over. (laughs) But it's never over. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, one session is not enough, <laughs> at least according to my wife, who is a psychiatrist. And <laughs> oh, I, now I see where it's coming from. <laughs> exactly. Um, anyway, so I wanted to ask some like kind of fun questions to like round out each uh, of the interviews that I do. Um, yeah. So, what's your favorite home cooked meal? Could be Persian. Could be American. Could be you. You cooking it, your mom cooking it, your wife cooking it. Wow. Oh my God. That's such a hard one, David. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you know,
2: I'll I'll say, um, gosh, Uh, I would say gorma sabzi, but my mom never made gorma sabzi. Okay. Um, so she would make Koresha karafs, which is like a stew with uh, celery, which is my okay. favorite food going up. Yeah. But really my favorite food is my mom's lasagna.
0: Nice. Awesome. Fantastic. Uh, favorite Persian restaurant could be anywhere in the country or the globe.
2: This might be blasphemous for some, <laughs> I think Moby Dick's house of kebab has the best, uh, Kubideh kebab in, uh, in America. That's the best Kubina.
0: Bit. Really? It's <laughs> That's the always marker you're putting
2: juicy. <laughs> I'm sure they slather with tons of butter.
0: It's the best. It's the best. Okay. All right. Which one do you go to in, in DuPont or do you have other ones that you.
2: I actually. So I recently moved to the suburbs mm-hmm. of Virginia and there's one pretty close to me.
0: Okay. Which is very dangerous. Is it better than the one in dupont or have you found that they're similar in terms of quality control
2: (laughs) you're trying to figure out why i think it's the best comida in america yeah i think think it's the same i think it's i think it's the same across the board
0: yeah okay yeah uh when you go back to seattle what's your like what are you looking for like rest forward to like restaurant bars food (laughs) okay this is your mom's cooking now (laughs) maybe this is my my uh
2: my father in law is a chef, my wife's family is in the yeah. food industry. Yeah. Um, and so this is like very pedestrian of me, yeah. But my favorite, the thing I look forward to most when I go back to Seattle, other than my family and the you yeah. know the nice scenery and everything, is teriyaki chicken.
0: Teriyaki There's
2: chicken. teriyaki chicken in Seattle, like every strip mall has a teriyaki chicken joint, okay. And they don't, I don't know, I've never had it anywhere else in the country uh-huh. when I came to DC. I mean it was like, you know, in college it was like my go-to hangover food. Right. And it was a rude awakening when I came to DC and realized that they don't have teriyaki chicken like they do in Seattle.
0: Is there a specific place you go to or is any every place?
2: I have a couple I have a couple okay. uh, places. Uh, bento Teriyaki near my parents and okay. then uh, there's a
0: place called uh Ichiban Teriyaki I think. Okay. So that's like your comfort foods like yeah. when you feel sick or hungover. That's what you go for. Or just hungry. hungry. <laughs> <laughs> In
2: general. And then I, I was really excited to share, you know, show it off to my wife and then she was just like, What, what is this this is not <laughs> <laughs> no? <laughs>
0: uh yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, what like scent reminds you of like your your like like a Persian home or like like what transports you back to like some bit of nostalgia? For example, I'll tell you like whenever I we drive by a distillery and I smell like the mash. I'm instantly transported back to my hometown. Like I can be anywhere. It can be in Europe. I can be anywhere in any part of the world. And I'm instantly transported back to my hometown.
2: <laughs> oh man. Um, gosh, I mean, I think, I think in Seattle the the air just kind of tastes different. <laughs> okay. Like it's just feels fresher and okay. cleaner. Um, Maybe it's in my head, but there's something about like getting off the plane in Seattle. Like you feel like,
0: oh, like, mm-hmm. or I feel like I'm home. Okay. All right. Um, I'm going to ask you a soccer question now. Uh Perispolis yeah. or Estegal? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll go paris but I don't really. Good, good answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're really
2: exposing me now.
0: Yeah, I know. All right, I don't even know who's on the teams now. I used to like know the players, but no, I don't. Um, will the Supersonics return to Seattle? <laughs> and will they be called the Supersonics, or will it just be a generic like franchise? Alright, so you know, you know, I have a theory on this. So, yep, um, that's why I asked. I want to-
2: this, the, so the Sonics, first of all, Howard Schultz, who the Starbucks guy, who sold the Sonics to Oklahoma city and now is running for president mm-hmm. is going through the public public humiliation. He deserves right now. Um, uh, the Sonics will return okay. uh, Kevin Durant, who was drafted by the Sonics mm-hmm. uh, before they moved to Oklahoma. He will return to mm-hmm. Seattle to end his career and have his Jersey hoisted up into the rafters mm-hmm. in Seattle um, as the, the greatest
0: Sonic ever mm-hmm. uh, just above Sean Kemp. Sean Kemp, former University of Kentucky player, did not actually play, but uh, <laughs> I forgot after, we have that connection. Yeah, we do. Um, even though I'm not a University of Kentucky fan, um, so how how long do you think that will take before it, it, it goes? Because I mean, he's getting towards the end of his career. Kevin Durant. So uh, yeah. I mean, he's. I think. I think he has. He has. Uh, you know, he's a
2: shooter. He, he he'll have a. He has another seven, eight years left. He's right. only
0: 30, I think.
2: So I think right. he'll, you It's know, hard
0: to imagine him, like, as only a 30-year-old because he right. was so young when he came into the right, league. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I think within the next
2: five years. All right. Yeah. And All right. every, t- I mean, every fledgling franchise in the NBA, um, I think Seattleites kind of, like, encircle, like, like vultures, <laughs> uh, you know, okay, is Memphis or the Grizzlies going to move to Seattle right. or it was the Kings a while ago. Yeah. So it's going to happen.
0: Okay. All right. Uh, Huskies or Cougars?
2: Uh, I am a UW alum, okay. so I got to go Huskies. My underdog sensibilities though, and the fact that like my brother went to Wazoo and my dad actually went to both. My mom actually went to both. Um, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't hate the Cougars. You don't hate the
0: Cougars. Okay. Uh, Favorite place to visit that's not D.C. or Seattle?
2: Uh, Favorite place. So it was San Francisco, and then I lived there for six months and realized that it's just L.A. with computers. Um, (laughs) Gosh. I mean, I guess I'll just easy, like Miami. Miami? Okay.
0: (laughs) all right, The beach. The beach. Okay. Um, You're a basketball guy, clearly, because you're a big Supersonics fan. Yeah. and I've seen you play a few times it's pretty good <laughs> i don't have any, I don't have a, like any analysis ability whatsoever, so I think the last anyway. time we played was at least five years ago. yeah,
2: things have uh declined
0: yeah <laughs> um so I want your take on the debate uh Jordan LeBron, or kobe ah
2: well, uh, Kobe, we can just remove from the conversation okay. I mean, All right. I, I, some I, people insert him there. I know my my wife's my wife and her dad are devote Laker fans, but yeah. more than anything, Kobe fans. Okay. Um, I am a de- devoted LeBron fan. Okay. Uh, I actually, I mean, I... We can't be friends. I, <laughs> it's so It just goes up and down with yeah. LeBron. Um, but so, yeah, like when the Sonics left, I decided, you know what? I'm just going to... Uh, LeBron, I like LeBron. I'm just going to become a LeBron fan. Okay. And so when LeBron went to the Lakers, I was really excited because... I don't like Laker fans. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like the the Lakers. And so I figured, you know, uh, it's a win-win if LeBron takes to the playoffs and does well, that's good for LeBron. If he doesn't, mm-hmm. sorry, Lakers. Um, but I, I just, it's, it's Jordan. It's Michael Jordan. Yeah. Like there's just, there's no comparing like Michael Jordan never m- missed the playoffs until he came to the wizards. Michael Jordan, like didn't have, there were, there were no like f- NBA finals choke moments for Michael Jordan. Yeah. Like, Michael Jordan. It, it's just ahead above the rest of Yeah. Them. Okay.
0: Awesome. Any, anything else? Yeah. Yeah. LeBron's great player. No doubt. Uh, I'm definitely, I think we both grew up at the same time. So like, it's hard not to be a Jordan fan. Right. Um, yeah. Um, there's still a lot more to like converse. We have an hour and we kind of like went through that pretty quickly. Um, but nonetheless, I really appreciate you coming on and, and taking time out of your day. Uh, I do want to say that I am petitioning to revoke your Persian card because you got here an hour early. (laughs) Um, And I'm also concerned about your hair uh, with these, like, headphones, and it's going to mess that up because that's, like, really, like, you have the best hair in D.C. I don't know, like, how you maintain it and how it never, like... never ever gets messed up. I've never seen it messed up at all. Even when we played soccer and basketball, it just stayed in place like perfectly. <laughs> so, um, it's going to take more than headphones yeah. to, to and disrupt and it. I'm supremely jealous because as you can tell, I'm thinning on top. So anyway, <laughs> nonetheless, I, I do appreciate you taking time out of your day and, and, and sitting down and chatting with us, uh, chatting with me. Um, and then also like uh, a week ago, having a chat as well. So, yeah. This is fun. Yeah. This is and, good. and again, thanks for everything that you do with NIAC as well and what the organization is doing for the community and, um, you know, trying to give us a voice or better representation, uh, in Washington and then across the country as well.
2: Yeah. And thanks for, thanks for being a part of that. And for, um, for doing this podcast, I think it's yeah. really interesting and something for our community to, to, to think through and explore. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, David. Yeah.
0: Part of what makes these interviews so fascinating is that they both confirm and dispel some preconceived notions about who I'm interviewing. But on top of all that, they can be therapeutic for everyone involved. I've known Jamal basically since I moved to D.C. He was my boss when I interned at the National Iranian American Council. We played soccer together on a few Saturday morning leagues and spent one afternoon several years ago on the hard court making fools of ourselves. That said, we never delved into his childhood, nor did I know much about his dreams for his son's Iranianness to be more than just a novelty. I had assumed correctly, though, that he, like myself, had developed an overbearing condition that's commonly known as imposter syndrome, especially when he steps into spaces filled with Iranians, and that the genesis of it came, in part, from not having a full grasp of the language. For some reason, though, I always assumed that Jamal's childhood would be a lot more like mine. For starters, our Persian is terrible. We've both sought out the culture in similar ways, using activism as our pathway to embracing our identities and the role that sports played in our general upbringing. But even though Jamal and I had similar experiences, it should have been obvious to me that Seattle would afford him many more opportunities to engage with the culture than I had in rural Kentucky. Being isolated in Bardstown meant that engagement with the culture required travel to bigger cities where more Iranians live. That distance along with life obligations made those opportunities much more difficult to access. And to be honest, it feels like Jamal's dad was far more willing to facilitate that engagement than my own. Gemma's grandparents came to live with him when he was in middle school. He explains the tension and culture shock that went in both directions, like being forced to sit uncomfortably at the sofa or his grandparents' butchering of sheep so that there were no lamb chops. Unfortunately for me, my dad's parents died before he immigrated to the US. Most of his family lived in Oklahoma or California, with a few living in the DC area. So again, distance made those exchanges much more infrequent. But when we did have those visits, the cultural shock that Jamal discussed was there too, although it came in different forms. Jamal also had a few instances where his name caused some unnecessary stress or anxiety. That's something I avoided, primarily because I have a common enough first name and a last name that didn't seem so foreign, although... We did have to spell our last name so often that even today I catch myself doing it. For me, though, the most poignant parts of the conversation with Jamal centered around three points. First, the very real desire to prove that you belong being biracial means that you struggle in both circles to prove you, you are enough. While that effort can create a crisis of confidence, it has also created a strong sense of Empathy and a desire for an appreciation of nuance. Second, wanting to pass on your heritage to your children so that it's more than just a novelty. But that may require addressing a third issue. And that's the void that so many of us hafis have from not being able to make the pilgrimage to Iran. Either by choice, financially, or because our parents have no interest in going, or unfortunately because of the work we've done in the past uh, could put our safety in jeopardy. What do you think? What stood out for you? Have you had similar experiences? Would a conversation like this be therapeutic for you, like it was for Jamal and myself? Let me know what you think. Shoot me an email at whiteadjacentpodcasts at com or comment wherever you're listening. Thanks for stopping by. And don't forget to catch my other episodes as well.
1: Next time they ask you where you're from you tell them i'm from every goddamn place you're crushing with your thumb next time they ask what kind of name you tell them it's the kind you're scared of but i'll say it just the same and if they want to who you are well, this time don't say nothing. You just pick up your guitar. I, I, I am. I am. I'm the poet. I'm the prophet. I'm the oil in the sand. I am. I am. I'm a menace and this man is the weapon in my hand i am i am, I am everything you love and i am everyone you
0: find. white adjacent is brought to you by bourbon and chai media final production by ian martin interviews recorded by heartcast media located in the dupont circle neighborhood of washington dc Music by Nima Samimi and his band Muhammad Seven. The song, entitled Manifesto, comes from their debut album Muhammad Seven and the Spring. The album can be found on iTunes or on their website, Mohammed7.com. And a special thanks to John Maines over at SB Works, a local non-profit in Washington, D.C.'s Northeast Quadrant.